This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, May 27th, 2019, episode 73, concerning a mouse and a frog. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last episode, we had a text that combined its tour of the other world with gnomic content. Proverbs, maxims, little cautionary tales. Today, we're continuing that theme with another genre of wisdom literature, the fable. Specifically, the fable of the mouse and the frog, an Aesopic fable of the Greco-Roman tradition. You might notice a lot of qualifiers in that statement. Uh, Why Aesopic? Uh, And what's Rome doing in there alongside Greece? Surely it's just one of Aesop's fables, and Aesop was a Greek slave, or at the very least, a slave in ancient Greece. Well, as is usual with so many cases of ancient authorship, it's not that simple. For one, the historical reality of Aesop is far from a settled question. There's a camp that argues he is no more real than Mother Goose, a fictional character on which a body of folklore can be hung. Others allow that there may well have been a historical Aesop who was known for using fables. Uh, Part of the claim for Aesop's reality rests with the fact that Herodotus makes reference to his death, uh, Aesop supposedly having been executed by the people of Delphi. This event is ascribed to the 6th century BCE, uh, only a hundred years or so before Herodotus was writing, which, in the scheme of ancient history, does give it a certain claim to credibility. However, while this camp accepts the possibility of a real Aesop who bestows his name upon a storytelling tradition, they propose that the vast majority of the fables under that name do not in fact originate with this one individual, and even if he did compose some original fables, Nothing survives that's in his own words. Uh, And this conclusion, that regardless of whether Aesop existed, none of what we now call Aesop's fables can be attributed directly to him, has pretty much carried the day. Uh, And unlike similar arguments that have swirled around the historical existence of Homer, I'm not aware of any notable scholars today who argue for an actual large corpus of fables composed by a real Aesop. As for the Greco-Roman part, uh, while the fables may have their roots in Greece, though actually quite a few originated much further east of the Aegean, uh, but even situating Greece as a transmission nexus, as it were, very few of our fable texts come out of Greece. Aesop is referenced by classical Greek authors. Uh, Plato famously describes Socrates in his prison cell, contemplating putting some fables of Aesop into verse. Uh, And that would have been not quite a century after Herodotus, so 200 years after the possible historical Aesop for those keeping track. Aristotle also relates a couple of fables he says were told by Aesop, Um, and there's a text from no earlier than the 1st century BCE, uh, the Life of Aesop, or the Vita Aesopi, sometimes called the Romance of Aesop, which basically highlights that this is a work of fiction. Um, and it incorporates a lot of fables into its narrative. But we have no larger collections of fables attributed to Aesop from classical Greece. In fact, the first independent body of Aesop's fables we have the texts of can only be dated back to about the 1st century CE, uh, and that's the fables as rendered in Latin verse by a Macedonian named Phaedrus, 
and Phaedrus himself even notes that he is including in his anthology some fables that are merely in the style of Aesop. He literally is already using Aesopic as an adjective. He writes that some of his fabuli are Aesopias non Aesopi. They are Aesopic, not Aesops. We know that Phaedrus was drawing on an existing collection, probably compiled in the first century BCE, uh, around the same time the life of Aesop was put down, but that source has not survived. In the second century CE, you get another collection, uh, this time in Greek, but by a Roman writer named Babrius, which gives you one of those fun bits of historical chiasmus. Uh, the Greek, or at least Hellenic author Phaedrus, writes the fables in Latin, and the Roman author writes them in Greek. The Roman associations with Aesopic fables are so strong that many medieval writers believed that Aesop was a Roman poet, uh, or at least one who wrote in Latin. Indeed, that's the case with one of our medieval fabulists we'll hear from today, Marie de France, who not only placed Aesop in Rome, but describes him as a translator of the fables into Latin. Phaedrus's Latin fables really dominate the late classical early medieval tradition, supplemented by the fables of Avianus, a 5th century author whose fables tend to retain his name with them and don't get wholly incorporated under the Aesop umbrella. However, we stop seeing copies of Phaedrus being produced around the 10th century, and instead, preference shifts over to a manuscript tradition known as the Romulus Collection, which began with Latin prose versions of the fables sometime before the 9th century, uh, and which divides into different traceable branches, some of which return to being metrical, uh, and some of which can be linked to named authors or adapters, but it all kind of becomes a big jumble. Uh, despite receiving literary treatment at the hands of imperial and medieval poets, the fable is, at its heart, a folk genre, and even in medieval manuscripts, it propagates rather freely and without much regard to the preservation of canonical texts. But the Romulus, in its various mutations, is the text of Aesop's fables that circulated most pervasively in the Middle Ages. It became the Aesop, for all intents and purposes. And the fact that there is so much variation in the Romulan tradition is just perfectly in character with the fable's resistance to definitive versions. We'll come back to the Romulus in just a little bit, but to start us off, let's hop back into antiquity. Our particular fable for this episode goes by a few names, uh, Mus kai batrokos in Greek, or Mus et rana in Latin, or the mouse and the frog, also sometimes given as the mouse, the frog, and the kite, where kite is the bird of prey, not the thing Charlie Brown keeps getting stuck in trees. I picked this fable in part because some of its medieval versions were brought to my attention by the article on mice in medieval literature by Lisa J. Kaiser, which I referenced in the episode at the start of this year on mouse plagues. Phaedrus does not have a version of this fable, but that slightly older Life of Aesop does. So let's hear how the mouse and the frog appears in the Vita Aesopi. First, though, some quick setup. In the biographical narrative, uh, Aesop has gone to visit Delphi and has said some uncomplimentary things about the Delphians, namely that they're descended from slaves. So the people of Delphi frame him for robbery of the Temple of Apollo, a grave act of desecration, and sentence him to death. As they first attempt to carry out this sentence, Aesop tells them a fable 
using it as a rhetorical device to try to persuade them of a course of action, or in this case, against a course of action that is throwing them off a cliff, which is how he's shown using the fables throughout the Vita and in his other cameos in classical authors, and we'll come back to that point later. So, here's what happens in the text as translated by Anthony Alcock. The Delphians arrived and dragged Aesop forcefully from prison to throw him from the cliff. Aesop called upon them to listen to him. When they turned to him, he said, When all creatures spoke the same language, a mouse, who was great friends with a frog, invited him to dinner and took him to the storehouse of a rich man, where there was bread, cheese, honey, figs, and every good thing. He said, Eat what you want, frog. After they had satisfied themselves, the frog said to the mouse, let me return the invitation that you may satisfy yourself with my good things. Do not hesitate and put your foot on my foot. He attached the mouse's foot firmly to his own and took him off to the harbor. The mouse, stifled, said, You will be the death of me, but I will be avenged by other creatures. A kite, seeing the mouse swimming, swooped down and seized it. The frog was dragged along with it. So he killed both. I too will die without legal consultation at your hands, but I will be avenged in law, for Babylon and the whole of Greece will investigate my death. When the Delphians heard this, they did not spare him, but dragged him to the cliff. So... As the narrative of the Vita Isapi continues, Aesop manages to squeeze in four more fables before finally being thrown over that cliff, uh, one of which is essentially a dirty joke that barely has relevance to the situation. Uh, really, the Vita Isapi feels a bit like a jukebox musical, where the narrative really only exists as a framework for anthologizing a bunch of fables. Uh, and this is one of the moments where you get the sense of the writer just finding a spot to wedge in another story. The fable of the mouse and the frog uh, fits a little better with the dire situation, and it provides a great illustration of the rhetorical role of the fable as it appears in our oldest sources. In those early classical references to Aesop, the fable is deployed in a specific context for a specific audience, often a specific individual, like Aesop's master. In place of the traditional generalized moral attached to the ending, the fable is presented for the specific audience to recognize themselves or their current circumstances in it. Rather than using the fable as a specific situation to draw a generalized moral from, as we usually get them today, the fable is the general example that is meant to resonate with the specific issues of the singular moment of its telling. And this is why the earliest recorded Aesopic fables we have are almost always presented as stories within stories. This changes around the first century BCE, as the fables are extracted out of those contexts and turned into vehicles for universal moral lessons. But that original performative context of the fable has also been associated with the indirect speech of the slave and the discourse of the subaltern. The slave or the powerless 
cannot directly criticize the master or even presume to advise them, but they can just tell a little descriptive story, just put it out there and let the master draw a conclusion from it about what kind of actions or behavior might be beneficial or harmful. It doesn't assert an argument, it just presents a believable observation, allowing for talking animals, of course. Based on this, there's one approach to reading fables and stripping them down to their most basic ingredients that proposes that the fable is essentially just a naturalistic description of recognizable human behavior, transposed, in most cases, onto animals. All of the moralizing we associate with fables is thus an external accretion that comes later and is always interpretive and always shaped and conditioned by the culture that is retelling the fable which is why you find different morals being attached to the same fable in different historical periods and by different cultures. One of my favorite examples of this is the classic The Fox and the Grapes, from which we get the expression sour grapes. One Romulan version, uh, quite close to Phaedrus's version, goes, A hungry fox saw some grapes hanging from a vine in a tree, and although he was eager to reach them, was unable to do so. As he went away, he said to himself, they're sour grapes. And that's it. A, a couple of sentences. It's not for sale, baby shoes never worn, but it's still got to be pretty close to one of the shortest expressions of a complete narrative arc you can have. But what's the lesson of this story? What is it trying to persuade you to do? I'd say nothing other than to recognize that the fox's behavior is something people do. And let's say Maybe you didn't get into a school you applied to, and then you started telling people how overrated that place was anyway, and a friend comes up to you and tells you this story and looks over the top of their glasses at you with a raised eyebrow. Maybe then you feel a certain critique of your behavior. But probably only if the fable has been specifically contextualized for you in that way. I'm a big fan of this approach to the fables. In my creative writing classes, I like to discuss it in conjunction with a quotation from Flannery O'Connor about meaning in literary fiction. She writes, quote, I myself prefer to say that a story is a dramatic event that involves a person because he is a person, and a particular person. That is, because he shares in the general human condition and in some specific human situation. A story always involves, in a dramatic way, the Mystery of Personality I lent some stories to a country lady who lives down the road from me, and when she returned them she said, Well, them stories just gone and shown you how some folks would do. And I thought to myself that that was right. When you write stories, you have to be content to start exactly there, showing how some specific folks will do, will do in spite of everything. O'Connor goes on to push this point even further, uh, a bit disingenuously, I think, to assert that, quote, A story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way, and it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. When anybody asks what a story is about, the only proper thing is to tell him to read the story. End quote. So that certainly stands against the idea of reducing a fable to a simple moral, um, but it also kind of dismisses interpretive criticism generally. Uh, but I do think it's a nice sentiment to at least instill in beginning fiction writers who have perhaps grown up with grade school English classes that still treat symbolism as a matter of decoding a hidden message, um, not to mention 
people like YouTube film critics who do much the same thing. Of course, O'Connor's principles emerge from the aesthetics of modernist psychological realism. If you want to teach or write medieval allegory, her rules aren't going to work for you. Though I think there is some mystery of personality at work in Piers Plowman. And uh, while there are a lot of fables for which this descriptive rather than prescriptive mode work, there are quite a few equally ancient fables that wear their persuasive message about what people should do on their sleeves, and even have one of the characters basically state what we'd recognize as a moral within the body of the text. And those prescriptive fables are found right alongside the more descriptive ones. So, again, it's not quite so simple. There has been extensive debate over when the standalone versions of the fables acquired their morals, uh, or to use the technical label, epimythia, that is, the statements attached to the end of the muthos, the story. And there can be promythia, which are attached uh, at the start of the story. There is evidence that they emerge from the use of fables as schoolroom texts, uh, getting back to O'Connor's reductive high school English teacher. Fable scholar Francisco Rodriguez Adrados concludes that it was in the schools of the Roman Empire in the first century BCE, under the influence of Stoicism and Cynicism, that the fable collections acquired systematic morals, which went with their use in general moral instruction of the pupils. But even passing the fables along with morals attached doesn't prevent later compilers and translators from changing them to better suit the values of their own time and place. So the Romulan moral to the fox and the grapes, getting back to the fox and the grapes, is many pretend to despise and belittle what they cannot attain, which is actually quite close to what you find in many modern versions of this fable. But William Caxton in the 15th century prints a version of this fable with a rather different moral, quote, and therefore this fable showeth that he is wise, which feigneth not to desire that thing the which he may not have. Caxton praises the fox's wisdom in deeming the unattainable grapes sour. Now, sour grapes isn't usually presented as a positive depiction of behavior these days. But if you live in late medieval society, where your position in the hierarchy is pretty well locked down unless you're ready to engage in bloody rebellion or civil war to overthrow the kingdom, well, maybe it is a valuable coping mechanism for finding contentment with your limited options for advancement. In fact, even though it's not the classical moral, it's quite stoic in attitude. And I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't a take in modern pop psychology that would use sour grapes as precisely an example of a successful coping strategy for alleviating anxiety and avoiding so-called decision regret. The Mouse and the Frog is another example of a fable that has different lessons attached to it by different authors. And that's what I'll focus on for the three remaining versions I'd like to share. There's lots of interesting things we could pull out of this narrative to discuss. Uh, for example, Kaiser's article, which led me to it, makes some great observations about how the different authors represent the mouse's relationship to the human sphere, uh, particularly human food supplies, uh, and how even as a generally sympathetic character, the mouse suffers in the story in part as a consequence of transgressing the boundary between the natural animal world, where she belongs, and the human world, where we don't want her. 
But uh, because I don't have time for a three-hour episode, I'm going to direct our attention going forward primarily to the epimythium attached to each version. So, the contextual message of the fable in the Vita Isapi is to warn the Delphians that unjust deeds will be avenged by some power. Which is kind of a weird message, uh, and which, we might note, does not succeed in preventing his execution. Though, indeed, uh, Delphi suffers from plagues and other calamities afterwards. It's also not clear in this version if the frog had evil intentions or just negligently drowned the mouse, not taking the mouse's needs and objections into account. The later versions are going to make the character of the frog much clearer. So let's get to one of those. Here's a version of the fable out of the Romulan tradition, as translated from Latin into English by Henry Thomas Riley in 1891. Actually, uh, as near as I can tell, this is specifically a translation of a 15th century text in Latin verse, but comparing it to older Latin versions from different Romulus manuscripts, um, I see that it's still very, very close to those, and it's a nice, clear, accessible translation, so I'm using it. Here it is. A mouse, in order that he might pass over a river with greater ease, sought the aid of a frog. She tied the foreleg of the mouse to her hinder thigh. Hardly had they swum to the middle of the river when the frog dived suddenly, trying to reach the bottom that she might perfidiously deprive the mouse of life. While he struggled with all his might not to sink, a kite that was flying near at hand beheld the prey, and seizing the floundering mouse in his talons, at the same time bore off the frog that was fastened to him. Thus do men often perish while meditating the destruction of others. So, this version is a bit more stripped down in detail than that from the Vita Isapi. We don't have the opening scene of the mouse and frog dining together and the promise of reciprocal hospitality, uh, establishing a guest-host relationship, which, as we've mentioned before, almost always carries with it in antiquity and the Middle Ages an extra-powerful sense of social ethics and responsibility. Violations of that relationship are viewed as especially egregious, uh, bordering on sacrilegious. Here, we have a much more direct portrayal of the frog as a deliberate murderer, albeit without any particular motive beyond natural wickedness. The epimythium of this version feels more descriptive of the story than the posthumous retribution idea of the Vita Isapi, but there's still a little bit of mystery to the cause and effect it suggests. People who try to hurt others get hurt themselves. Sure, but why? Is it a natural outcome of their own scheming? Or is it suggesting a kind of divine punishment uh, in line with the Vita Isapi, uh, be it a bolt from heaven or a hawk plunging from the sky. Our next author expands the moral of the story a bit further, and indeed expands the whole story. Isopic fables lend themselves to the medieval rhetorical practice of amplification, taking a short bit of material and making it longer. 
and the fables still get that treatment today. Uh, look up any version of The Fox and the Grapes in a modern book of fables, and I can pretty much guarantee you it will be at least a little bit longer and a little more detailed than the bare-bones Romulan version we heard. Our amplifier in this case is Marie de France, whom we heard from way back in episode 18 on The Lay of Bisclaveret, or Bisclaveret if you opt for modern pronunciation. I gave Marie an introduction in that episode, which you can revisit if you like, uh, but since that was five years ago, um, here's a nutshell version. We know Marie de France because she names herself in her writing. The fact that she specifies that she is de France indicates that she was a French-born woman living in England, since you wouldn't specify that you were from France if you were still living in France. She's writing in the late 12th, early 13th century, and she's literate and knows Latin as well as French and English. We know who some of her patrons are, because she names them in the prologues and epilogues of her works. Beyond that, there's little else we can say for certain. Many have proposed specific historical Maries that could be her, but no one's made a conclusive case for any of these identifications. She's best known today for her collection of lays, uh, little chivalric tales often with a folkloric element to them, like the lay of Bisclaveret the werewolf. But in the Middle Ages, while her lays were known and were translated into other languages, including Old Norse, far more manuscripts of her fables survive and attest to their popularity. The fables are preserved wholly or in part in at least 25 manuscripts from the 13th to the 15th centuries. In contrast, the lays are only found in five surviving manuscripts, and only one of those has the full set of twelve, and two of the five manuscripts only contain one lay each. The source for Marie's fables is a bit mysterious. She tells us in the prologue and epilogue to the 102 fables in her collection that first the Emperor Romulus, a mythical figure, wrote the fables, that Aesop translated them from Greek into Latin, and that King Alfred translated them from Latin into English. And this English book of fables is what she has translated into Anglo-Norman French verse. The Romulus and Aesop business is pure medieval misconception, uh, but there's a certain plausibility to King Alfred making, or more likely commissioning, a translation, since translations into English of patristic, historical, and philosophical works, like Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, were one of the great intellectual and literary achievements of Alfred's court and cultural program. But there's no other known reference to a fable collection coming out of Alfred's court, and any such translation would have been in the Anglo-Saxon English of the 9th century, it's hard to believe that Marie would be able to understand that old form of English in the late 12th century, when the language had changed considerably. As such, some have proposed that this lost English book was written much later by someone else named Alfred, and there are theories about who this might be and what sources they used. Some, of course, think Marie is concocting a fictional source, or at least a fictional pedigree for her source. Despite invoking the Emperor Romulus in her prologue, her fables are less similar to the Latin Romulus tradition than they are to Greek versions, and there are other suggestions of Eastern influences on Marie's versions. So there is some real mystery about where she got her material from. 
Also, we can assume that she's translating in the medieval sense, which is not a word-for-word translation, but something more like an adaptation of material into a new form in a new language. And her translation almost certainly involved amplification of the source material. So let's hear Marie's version. You might just note that, compared to the Romulan version, Marie starts us off with a scene of hospitality, just as the Greek version from the Vita Isapi did. And though we didn't hear it, the Greek version by Babrius also starts with the mouse hosting the frog for dinner. And that scene is really brought to life by Marie, with lots of little details. Uh, I think you'll find that this feels much more like a short story than the older versions, which can feel like paraphrases of a story. Marie was writing in rhyming verse. Our translation is in nice, clear, modern prose by Mary Lou Martin, who made a complete translation of all of Marie's fables, which was published in 1984. And I'd like to thank Professor Martin, who very kindly gave permission for me to perform her translation of this fable on the show. And here it is. Once was a mouse who, because of her cleverness and ingenuity, had set up housekeeping in a mill. One day, as the story goes, she was sitting on the doorstep, grooming her whiskers and combing them with her feet. As luck would have it, a frog passed by and asked her, in mouse language, if she were the lady of this house where she was pretending to be the mistress. The frog wanted to hear about her way of life. The mouse answered her, My friend, For some time I have had the run of it, and it is well under my control, since I can live, play, and enjoy myself day and night in the mouse holes all around the house. Now stay the night with me, and believe me, I'll find you a place on the millstone where you'll be comfortable. You'll find nothing there to displease you, and you'll find quite a bit of flour and grains of wheat that are left over by the peasants. At her urging, the frog stayed. They both sat on the stone, where they found much to eat without being driven away or threatened. The mouse kindly asked the frog to tell her what she thought of her food. "'I won't lie about it by any means,' she said. "'It would have been prepared just right if it had been moistened in a bit of water. "'If only we were both comfortably in a mud puddle in the middle of that meadow. "'That's my home. "'Fair friend, let's go there. "'You'll have so much joy and pleasure there "'that I think you'll never want to come back to this mill.' The frog promised the mouse so much through her cleverness and flattered her so by her words that the mouse, like a fool, believed her and went off together with her. The meadow was so full of dew and the mouse got so wet that she thought she might well drown. She wanted to go back since she couldn't go forward. But the frog, who had taken her away against her will, called to her so sweetly and pleadingly that at last they came to the river. At that point, the mouse could not go on, and crying, she said to the frog, I'll never get across here, because I can't swim. Take this thread, said the frog, and tie it tightly around your middle, and I'll attach it to mine. Then we'll easily cross the river. The mouse tied the thread around herself, and harnessed herself to the frog. They set out into the ford, and went along their way. But when they came to the deep part, The frog wanted to drown the mouse and began to dive into the water with her. 
the mouse, who thought all was lost, piped up and started squeaking. A kite came by and saw the squeaking mouse. He folded his wings, dove down, and seized her and the frog together, both hanging from the same thread. The frog was big and fat, so out of greediness, the kite left the mouse and took the frog. It ate and devoured her while the mouse was set free. Clever scoundrels are much like the frog. No matter how kind and complimentary they are to their friends, they are never so close to their friends that they would hesitate to take advantage of them, especially if it were a question of their own expense. On the other hand, it frequently happens that the misfortune they had planned for their friends ends up on their own doorstep. So, there you have Marie's nicely expanded take on the fable. Looking at its epimythium, the word that Martin translates as scoundrels in it is the Old French felons, a key word throughout Marie's fables. French being the language of law in post-conquest England, this word is the source of our terms felon and felony, though there is also a link back through older Latin roots to the very Tolkien-esque adjective fell, as in fell beasts, or Legolas warning that there is a fell voice in the air as Saruman brings the avalanche down on the fellowship. That meaning of fell, uh, wicked, sinister, cruel, that gets closer to what felon and felone mean for Marie's audience. It's not just serious crime. It's betrayal, treachery, a breach of both personal trust and the social contract. One of the dominant themes of the fables is Beware of deceivers and oath-breakers. And this fable hits that theme hard. In her 2009 book, From Aesop to Renard, Beast Literature in Medieval Britain, Jill Mann builds on the argument of Hans Robert Jaus, who interpreted Marie's fables as articulating a distinctly feudal value system of rigid class distinctions, which inform the many fables that involve partnerships among unequals especially between predators and prey, or between the servile and the dominant. The unnatural animal pairings are used to imply that the analogous human relationships are also unnatural. It's a very socially conservative value system. Man finds that there is a lot to support Yaus's reading in many of the fables, but identifies other dynamics than just the oppressive social hierarchy at work. So, in Marie's version of The Mouse and the Frog, the physical differences of species and habitat between mammals and amphibians certainly factors into the unnaturalness of this companionship, but this doesn't map onto any obvious distinction of social status, unlike many of the other fables of noble versus ignoble animals or rich versus poor. Instead, the conflict here is about disloyalty. It's about the danger posed by sweet-tongued deceivers. There is a feudal knightly value involved here, but it's not social hierarchy, but rather the value of words and oaths, or more accurately, a cynical rejection of trusting in the value of mere words and promises. Marie's moral puts the focus on why treacherous con artists, or really sociopaths, why they're dangerous, and points out the bad end met by the felon. Uh, this is the motif of the trickster gets tricked, 
and accords with the moral attached to the version from the Romulus. Thus do men often perish while meditating the destruction of others, uh, which also appears in some other versions even more specifically as, thus those who set snares for others often fall into their own traps, which has a bit more cause-and-effect logic to it. Marie highlights the kind of karmic qualities of this message even more by, uh, uniquely in the ancient and medieval versions of this fable, uh, by allowing her mouse to escape death in the talons of the kite, so that only the wicked frog gets punished. The mouse gets to walk away, presumably wiser, though there is very seldom in the Aesopic tradition any real sense that the animal characters learn lessons. In fact, because their behavior is shaped by the conventional ideas about their animal nature, the greedy dog, the foolish ape, the innocent lamb, it's kind of assumed that they are incapable of the kind of personal growth that the human audience is, which may be why the fables tend to dish out punishments more often than rewards. They're perhaps most effective as cautionary tales about what kind of behavior to avoid. And that brings us to our fourth and final version of this fable, where the emphasis in the moral is shifted off of the wickedness of the frog and put onto the foolishness of the over-trusting mouse. This is another poetic rendition by the 15th century Scottish poet Robert Henderson. We know a little bit more about Henderson than Marie de France, but not that much more. We know a person of that name was admitted as a member of the University of Glasgow in 1462, we find that name as a witness on deeds for lands near Inverkeething around 1477, and Henderson is named as a dead poet from Dunfermline in a poem by William Dunbar, which was written in 1505, so we know he must have been dead by then. And that's pretty much it. Actually, there's one more item, which is a brief and most likely apocryphal anecdote about what his last words were which I'll post as an appendix to this episode for our Patreon supporters. You're going to be in for a little treat. But otherwise, uh, the rest of our knowledge of Henderson is really his surviving poetry, which amounts to only about 5,000 lines worth. Included in that total is his Moral Fables, a set of 13 Aesopic fables written in the Scots language. Henryson's Scots is easier for a modern English speaker to read than Chaucer's Middle English, uh, but for this episode I've gone in and, well, modernized isn't really the right word for turning 15th century Scots into mostly modern English, uh, but translate is a bit too grand. This is a tweaking of vocabulary and phrasing rather than a full re-rendering. Uh, sadly, one of the things that gets lost with modern English pronunciation are many of the rhymes. You'll still hear a lot of them, but many become slant rhymes, uh, and some do just disappear when I've replaced a dialect word or changed the syntax. I have kept some Scots words, though, for major characters, so let me run down a little glossary to set us up for the text. Henderson's title for the fable is The Tale of the Paddock and the Mouse. Paddock comes from a Germanic root, pad, meaning a toad, with the suffix ock, which is a diminutive suffix like we have in bullock and hillock. Paddock appears in Middle English, but today is mainly a dialect word found in Scotland and Ireland. As a side note, paddock meaning an enclosure for animals, or dinosaurs if you're a Jurassic Park fan, uh, is a variant form of parrock, uh, also now chiefly a northern dialect word, 
Uh, and Peric comes from park plus ock, so a little park. The hawk, or kite, is called here a gleed, another Middle English word that is also in Scots. It derives from the same root as glide, so a gleed is basically a glider. I wondered if kite has the same kind of origin, where the bird is named after how it flies. But the case with kite is reversed. The toy kite is named after the bird, and the bird word comes from Old English, and its deeper origins are mysterious. Uh, it doesn't have any cognates in other languages. Also, speaking of regional usages, we're going to see the female paddock call the female mouse Sir Mouse, which seems odd to modern ears, but a gender-neutral usage of Sir was also a Scottish dialectical feature all the way into the 1800s. We also have a couple of adjectives to explain. Uh, Henderson refers to the mouse several times as silly. This is one of those complex words that once had a huge range of meanings that have mostly dropped away in our modern usage. Silly is a later form of seely, which if you're up on your fairy lore, you'll know from the seely and unseely courts. Seely means blissful or blessed or lucky, which shaded over into holy or pious, and thence to innocent, and from there into defenseless, helpless, and then, in that same vein, naive, simple, foolish. And it's mostly the second half of this branch of meaning that sticks with silly. In this tale, it's hard to say if it means the mouse is helpless or rustic or foolish. It probably evokes a bit of all three. But it isn't about the mouse being goofy or playful or the other shades of how we usually use silly today. Luckin is a Scots dialect word uh, from locked, and when describing fingers or toes, it means webbed. For a person to have luck in toes is proverbially said to be lucky, though I don't know if the superstition comes from the similarity of the words. And finally, marrow, which is a major term for Henryson's moral. Uh, and I mentioned that the morals expand as we move along. Henryson's moralitas section is a full third of the total length of this fable. Anyway, marrow is another dialectical word from Middle English, meaning an equal, a partner, a companion. It seems to be etymologically unrelated to bone marrow or the type of vegetable, though those latter two are related. So, here at last is Robert Henryson's The Tale of the Paddock and the Mouse, lightly adapted for modern English speakers by me. Upon a time, as Aesop could report, a little mouse came to a riverside. She might not wade, her shanks were so short, she could not swim, she had no horse to ride. A very force behooved her to bide, and to and fro beside that river deep, she ran, crying with many a piteous peep. Help over, help over, the silly mouse did cry, for God's love, somebody over this brim. With that, a paddock in the water by, put up her head, and on the bank did climb, quick by nature could duck and gaily swim. With voice full rock, she said on this manner, Good morn, Sir Mouse, what is your errand here? Seest thou, quoth she, 
Of corn, yon jolly flat, of ripe oats, of barley, peas, and wheat, I am hungry, and fain would be thereat, but I am stopped by this water grate, and on this side I get nothing to eat but hard nuts, which with my teeth I bore, were I beyond, my feast were far the more. I have no boat, here are no mariners, and though there were, I have no freight to pay. Quod she, Sister, let be your heavy cheer. Do my counsel, and I shall find the way, without horse, bridge, boat, or yet galley, to bring you over safely, be not afeard, and not wetting the whiskers of your beard. I have great wonder, quod the silly mouse, how can thou float without feather or fin? This river is so deep and dangerous, methink that thou should be drowned therein. Tell me, therefore, what faculty or gin thou hast to bring thee over this water. Then, thus to declare, the paddock soon began. With my two feet, quod she, luckin and broad, instead of oars, I row the stream full still. And though the brine be perilous to wade, both to and fro I row at my own will. I may not drown, for why? My open gill devoids all the water I receive. Therefore to drown, forsooth, no dread I have. The mouse beheld unto her frontset face, her wrinkled cheeks and her lips wide, her hanging brows and her voice so hoarse, her gangly legs and her harsky hide. She ran aback, and on the paddock cried, If I know any skill of physiognomy, thou hast some part of falseness and envy. For clerks say the inclination of man's thought proceeds commonly after the corporeal complexion, to good or evil, as nature will apply. A twisted will, a twisted physiognomy. The old proverb is witness of this. Lorum distortum voltum, sequitur distortio morum. No, quod the toad, that proverb is not true, for fair things oft times are found fake. The blueberries, though they be sad of hue, are gathered up when primroses forsaken. The face may fail to be the heart's token. Therefore I find this scripture in all places. Thou should not judge any man after his face. Though I unwholesome be to look upon, I have no cause why I should be found lacking. Were I else fair as jolly Absalom, I am no causer of that great beauty. This difference in form and quality Almighty God has caused Dame Nature to print and set in every creature. Of some the face may be full flourished, of silken tongue and cheer right amorous, with mind inconstant, false, and varying, full of deceit and means cautelous. Let be thy preaching, quod the hungry mouse, and by what craft thou make me understand that thou would guide me to yon yonder land. Thou wait, quod she, a body that has need to help themselves should many ways cast. Therefore go take a double-twined thread, and bind thy leg to mine with knots fast. I shall teach thee to swim, be not aghast, as well as I. As thou, then quod the mouse, to prove that play it were right perilous. Should I be bound and fast, where I am free? In hope of help, now then I shrew us both for I might lose both life and liberty. If it were so, who should amend the scathe? But if thou swear to me the murder oath, without fraud or guile, to bring me over this flood, without hurt or harm. In faith, quod she, I do it. 
She gawked up, and to the heavens did cry, O Jupiter, of nature god and king, I make an oath truly to thee, that I this little mouse shall over this water bring. This oath was made. The mouse, not perceiving the false engine of this foul, deceitful toad, took thread and bound her leg as she her bade. Then foot for foot they leapt both in the brim, but in their minds they were right different. The mouse thought of nothing but for to swim, the paddock for to drown set her intent. When they in midward of the stream were went, with all her force the paddock pressed down, and thought the mouse without mercy to drown. Perceiving this, the mouse on her did cry, Traitor to God and man sworn unto me, Thou swore the murder oath right now, that I without hurt or harm should ferried to be and free. And when she saw that there was but do or die, with all her might she forced her to swim and pressed upon the toad's back to climb. The dread of death her strength gave increase and forced her defend with might and main. The mouse upward, the paddock down did press, while to, while fro, while ducking up again, this silly mouse, thus plunged into great pain, kept fighting as long as breath was in her breast, till at last she cried for a priest. As they fought thusly, the gleed sat on a branch, and to this wretched battle took good heed, and with a whisk, before any of them wist, he clutched his claw betwixt them in the thread, then to the land he flew with them good speed, glad of that catch, piping many a pew, then loosed them, and both without pity slew. Then, disemboweling them, that butcher with his bill, and peeling the skin, full keenly them flayed. But all their flesh would scant be half a fill, and guts also unto that greedy gleed. When he had their debate thus settled, he took his flight, and over the fields flew. If this be true, ask ye at them that saw. Moralitas. My brother, if thou wilt take notice by this fable, thou may perceive and see it passes for all kind of pestilence, a wicked mind with words fair and sly. Beware, therefore, with whom thou fellows thee. To thee were better to bear the stone wheelbarrow, for all thy days to delve while thou may endure, than to be matched with a wicked marrow. A false intent under a fair presence has caused many innocent for to die. Great folly is to give over soon credence to all that speak fairly unto thee. A silken tongue, a heart of cruelty, smites more sore than any shot of arrow. Brother, if thou be wise, I advise thee flee, then match thee with a twisted, feigned marrow. I warn thee also, it is great negligence to bind thee fast where thou was frank and free. For once thou be bound, thou may make no defense to save thy life, nor yet thy liberty. This simple counsel, brother, take of me, and it to learn by heart. See thou not tarot, better but strive to life alone in peace than to be matched with a wicked marrow. This hold in mind. Write more, I shall tell thee, whereby these beasts may be figured. The paddock, used in the flood to dwell, is man's body, swimming early and late into this world with cares implicit, now high, now low, at times plunging up, at times down, ever in peril and ready for to drown. Now dolorous, now blithe as bird on briar, now in freedom, now wrapped in distress, 
now hale and sound, now dead and brought on beer, now pure as Job, now surrounded in riches, now gowns gay, now rags laid in a chest, now full as fish, now hungry as a hound, now on the wheel, now wrapped to the ground. This little mouse, here tied thus by the shin, the soul of man betoken may indeed, bound and from the body may not win, while cruel death can break of life the thread. The witch to drown should ever stand in dread of carnal lust by the suggestion which draws ever the soul and drags it down. The water is the world, always weltering with many wail of tribulation in which the soul and body were stirred, standing right different in their opinion. The soul upward, the body presses down. The soul right fain would be brought over, Ewis, out of this world unto the heaven's bliss. The gleed is death that comes suddenly as does a thief and ends soon the battle. Be vigilant, therefore, and always ready, for man's life is brittle and ever mortal. My friend, therefore, make thee a strong castle of faith in Christ, for death will thee assay, thou knows not when, evening, morrow, or midday. Adieu, my friend, and if that any asks of this fable so shortly I conclude, say thou, I left the rest unto the friars, to make example and a similitude. Now Christ for us that died on the rood of soul and life as thou art Savior, grant us to pass until a blessed hour. So, the core of Henderson's version drops the hospitality motif and takes us back to the simpler setup of the mouse hoping to cross the river to get at the abundance of food on the other side, bringing us back to the Romulan versions of the fable. But whereas both the Romulan version and Marie's version focused their epimythia on condemning treacherous types like the frog and giving them their just desserts, Henderson asks readers to identify with the mouse and to protect themselves from being won over by slick-tongued deceivers. And then he takes us a step beyond the conventional pragmatism of the fable lesson and dives into an allegorical exegesis. He turns this fable into a kind of encoded version of the traditional soul-and-body dialogue. This kind of complicates our understanding of the wickedness of the frog, I think. Of course, there is a contempt for the flesh tradition at work there, with the body being the vehicle for carnal temptation, but the idea of the body essentially trying to murder the soul seems rather extreme. Henryson certainly makes the frog undeniably wicked, but his allegory almost seems more fitting with the Vita Isapi version, where the frog's desire to plunge to the bottom of the river is perhaps less murderous and simply a kind of unthinking impulse, part of its nature. Or maybe there's a sort of proto-Calvinist bleakness at play here. Uh, I don't know. We also have a weird little micro-moral inserted into the middle of this story, when the frog quite rightly objects to the mouse's argument that her physical ugliness indicates ugliness of character. 
The Frog basically tells us, don't judge a book by its cover, and makes the better argument. Except, of course, the Frog does turn out to be evil. So, is Henryson saying that we should judge a book by its cover? His moral focuses on not trusting fair and pleasing words, uh, which accords with the distrust of words that appears throughout the Aesopic corpus, but he doesn't really offer the other usual sentiment of not trusting fair and pleasing appearances. He warns of a false intent under a fair presence, but I'm not really sure how much presence there points to appearance versus manner or presentation, so to speak. I don't know what to make of it. I rather think it's one of those ambiguities that almost invariably come along with expanding a story with richer characterization. While I'm uncertain of the morality of this poem, aesthetically, it's a real delight to read. I say delight. Um, It's also the most brutal and heartbreaking of the four versions. The struggle of the mouse to survive is deeply affecting, uh, at least to me. And in that sense, it maybe helps sell the spiritual advice, uh, helping to encourage one to try to save one's poor, helpless soul from being dragged down into the waters of the world by the corrupt body. And speaking of brutal aesthetics, there was one phrase I couldn't elegantly convert into English in the flow of the poem. It's in a pair of lines that, in the original go, Sinna bowlet them, that butcher with his bill... That's, then he disemboweled them, that butcher, with his bill. And then the next line is, And belly flocked full fettily them flayed. According to the Dictionary of the Scots Language, the word belly flocked means with the skin pulled off entire over the head, which is rhythmically rather hard to fit into the line. If any of you have played Red Dead Redemption 2, I have to imagine this is a bit like what you see in the rather startling animation for skinning rabbits in that game. Uh, Not only does Henryson deny the escape that Marie gives the mouse, he makes us watch this nasty but naturalistic ending to its silly life. Henryson's version of the fable is perhaps the most distant in style and content from the classical Aesopic tradition of all the versions we've heard today, But in this little piece of raw but realistic observation of raptor behavior, he maybe comes closest to evoking the brutality of the animal world that is so simply but vividly rendered in the ancient fables. Our riddle for this episode also partakes of the brutality of a dog-eat-dog world. Here it is. Bitter is my life, my death is sweet and both are water. I die pierced by bloodless spears, but if anyone will cover me when dead in a living tomb, I am first moistened by the blood of my relations. This is a tricky one, Uh, not so much because its imagery is especially cryptic, but because the assumptions behind some of its imagery are odd or unfamiliar. This is another riddle from the Greek anthology, or the Palatine anthology, as translated by W.R. Patton, a Greek riddle for Greek fables. The answer to this riddle is, of course, a fish. Patton tells us that the last line about being moistened in the blood of the fish's relations alludes to the dead fish being marinated in a pickle made with fish blood. 
my own quick Googling of fish blood pickle uh, to see if this is still done anywhere turned up a different possibility in which the so-called blood pickle is actually a phenomenon you see in salting fish, where the blood pickle is the name for the fluid that is leached out of the fish by the salt and which it sort of sits in, I guess. Then again, the ancient Mediterranean loved its garum, a fermented fish sauce, so maybe the riddle is referring to immersing the fish in the remains of other fish. The living tomb is the stomach of the person who eats the fish, but as for the rest, honestly, uh, I don't know why the spears that pierce it are bloodless, and while its life and death both being water makes sense for a fish, I can't tell you why a fish's life is apparently bitter and its death sweet. Is there a Greek belief about fish longing for death? Is it some reference to fish being tasty when dead and cooked, but bitter if you eat them alive? Uh, Like I said, I can't tell you. But it does all kind of feel of a piece with the fables. And that brings us to the end of this supersized episode. Uh, Last episode, I said I was heading off to the big medieval studies conference at Kalamazoo, and now I've come back from that. I owe a shout-out to Peter Konechny of Medievalist.net and the Medieval Warfare podcast, and Danielle Sibulski of the Medievalist podcast and the 5-Minute Medievalist, who talked shop with me over a great meal at Bilbo's Pizza. The conference was great, got to see a lot of old friends and colleagues, but I can't squeeze in a rundown of it in this episode uh, because it's already bursting at the seams. So, as always, you can get more information about this and every episode, including bibliographic references for the texts at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can contact me by email uh, to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, or you can reach out via Twitter, where we are at MDTPodcast. If you support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to a bunch of extra audio content, including, as I mentioned before, an appendix for this episode that relates the story of Robert Henderson's last words. You can do that at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, or just searching for Medieval Death Trip at patreon.com. I'll be back in June with another episode. Until then, don't accept any rides from frogs. No. That's not fair to frogs. Don't take any rides from untrustworthy frogs. But then, how do you know if an individual frog is particularly untrustworthy? You know, just forget all of that. Let's start over. Until then, don't trick people and then hurt them. I think that's a lesson we can all take to heart. So, remember that, and thanks for listening.